0: Lord, we praise you that you did overcome. Lord, you are the victor. Lord, you are the faithful high priest that stands in solidarity with us. And Lord, I pray today that as we look at your word, we would see the implications, again, that this would not just be a lesson. It would not just be a uh, some statements about the person and the work of Jesus, but Lord, it would just bring us to worship. It, the implications of these truths would change us, it would change us in the normal now and just the mundane and uh, the daily task of our lives that, God, it would bring us to hope and depend upon Jesus. So, Father, through the power of your Spirit, we pray that Not only would you speak through my words, but Lord, you'd open up hearts and Lord, that you would bring everybody here to the same common theme of hope and dependence upon Jesus. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you got your Bibles this morning, if you'd open up to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2, last week, we started looking at Christ, our representative, Christ, our representative, and what we began to look at was why is the humanity of Jesus Christ so essential? Why is that so important? I was reading an article that I hope helps us to understand. Isn't it difficult sometimes when we stand here in 2021 and we seek to faithfully bridge the gap? Of, of seeking to uphold what the authors of Scripture and the meaning that they were seeking to convey, yet build a bridge of application to the current day. But we need to understand that within the first century, there were massive attacks on the person and work of Jesus. You see, we, if we understand that, there's nothing new under the sun. And so everything that happens now has happened in the past. And so the more we understand about the past, it enlightens how we look at the present. There was a group called the Ebionites. The Ebionites made the error of saying and rejecting the preexistence of Christ. And by doing so, they rejected the deity of Jesus. That was an error that was floating around the time of uh, this letter. But there was another group known as the, this was called Docetism, And you may be thinking, I really don't care about these names, but it's important that you at least understand what they were teaching. Docetism believed that Christ was not fully human. And so to understand that, it becomes really important. One of the early church fathers was a guy by the name of Ignatius and Ignatius of Antioch in one of his letters that we have in history. You know what he says and he's right on the money. He's a follower of Christ and he writes to Ephesus. He writes to Ephesus and he says, do not so much as listen to anyone unless he speaks truthfully about Jesus Christ. And the author of Hebrews at that point would have echoed a hearty amen. Because what he's doing is we're looking at a a letter that is showing us the supremacy of Jesus, how Jesus is greater. As the author writes to a group of Jews that had trusted Christ, that were tempted in the midst of their persecutions, in the midst of the sufferings of life, they were tempted to leave Christianity, go back into Judaism. What better way to start this letter by focusing on the greatness of Jesus And that's what he's been doing in chapter one. Jesus is greater than the prophets. He's greater than the angels. He is the prophet, the priest, and the king. As we get into chapter two, in those first four verses, he says, look, pay close attention to what you've heard, lest you drift. And then in verses five through nine, he shows us this remarkable way in which Christ restores that which we have lost through the fall. How Jesus is the ultimate one. He is supreme. And so as we've moved down into verse nine, all the way to the end of the chapter, we see seven ways the humanity of Jesus is essential. Seven ways it is essential. Why is it necessary for Christ to be Fully God, yet fully man. Well, we began that journey last time. We saw that the humanity of Christ is essential in his substitution, number one. In his substitution for our sin. We saw how it is essential in his suffering. We saw how it also is in his sanctifying work. But then fourthly last time, we saw the remarkable truth that Christ accepts us as his brothers, which shows us that it was absolutely necessary for Jesus to be fully man in order for that to take place. Last time we were together, we left off with some quotes that he begins to allude to. And let's read the entire passage, Hebrews 2, 13 through 18. But we're gonna start in verse 12. Because that's where the quotations are, just to get us caught up. Look at verse 12, and we'll read from there. In verse 12 or 11, For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. Let's look at the first quotation out of the Old Testament there in verse 12. And in verse 12, we see that he says, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. The second quotation, I will put my trust in him in verse 13. At the end of verse 13, the third quotation, Behold, I and the children God has given me. Verse 12 is a quotation out of Psalm chapter 22. In verse 13, there's two quotations that come from Isaiah chapter 8. Now, I want to look at this with you because I think this is really important. And I was just looking at some things even since the first service this morning. Uh, Kent Hughes, he is really a pastor of pastors. I love this man. He Really helped me with these quotations. I'm leaning on him heavily here and explaining this, but I think he's right. The first one that we see is in Psalm 22. If you remember, Psalm 22 is messianic. Psalm 22 speaks about Jesus in verses six through eight being mocked by the crowd. Verses 14 through 15 speaks about the agonies that Christ experienced through his suffering and crucifixion. So if you read that chapter, you'll see that. But then something remarkable happens. See, like, I'll give you an example. Like uh, 16 says, a band of evil men has encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me. Then it says, they divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. What do you immediately think of? The gospel story of the crucifixion. But then something takes place in verse 22. Psalm 22 then shifts. And scholars believe that up until this point, while speaking of the suffering and the agony of Jesus, as he moves to verse 22, now it's speaking of the resurrection. It's speaking of the the victory of Messiah. And then in verse 22, here's where we see the quotation, where he says, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. So now at this point, we see Jesus declaring and extolling the Father's name. Now this is interesting because this is exciting because it's speaking of the congregation or speaking of the people of God, which is the church. That Jesus calls out to the brethren, calls out to the church. He praises the Father's name. Even to the point to where John Calvin said, this teaching is the very strongest encouragement to us to bring yet more fervent zeal to the praise of God when we hear that Christ leads our praise and is the chief conductor of our hymns. Wow. You see, at this point, Hughes goes on, Jesus is proud to call his redeemed brothers and sisters and then to declare to his brothers and sisters what God is like, even leading them in singing God's praises. Wow, this is amazing. You see, Christianity is God's revelation to man. And we now, this morning, you may be thinking, i got to wait for this guy to get through his sermon so I can go eat. I've been there before when I was a kid. You, I got, uh, where are we going to eat? Where are we going to eat? But I want you to understand something. What's really going on here? for people that are truly believers in Jesus Christ. We have been awakened. We have received revelation. And now we come together and the only reason that we can praise him, that we can sing to him is because Christ Jesus brings us there. He is the conductor of our hymns. What encouragement to suffering Christians You see, this is, what would this have done to the church that he writes to that's going through persecution? But go to the next one. Then we get into Isaiah 8. In Isaiah 8, it says there in the passage, And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I am the children of God has given me. Now, what's fascinating is if you read Isaiah 8, it's sandwiched in between two messianic prophecies, Isaiah 7, Isaiah 9, and Isaiah chapter 8, Isaiah is speaking in Isaiah 8. As he speaks in Isaiah 8, he speaks about his children, children that God had given him. And, And I found this fascinating. What's happening here is he speaks about the trust that he had in God, and he speaks about how God worked through Isaiah. What's, it's interesting because what God had given two sons to Isaiah. You can read that chapter to understand more. They were promises that God had a future for the people of Israel. They were promises that even though the people rejected Isaiah's message that God was going to keep working. God had a remnant. And what's interesting is, is that then we see that Jesus speaks these very words. You see, Christ Then we see Isaiah's words in the mouth of Christ in this passage where it says, I will put my trust in him. Hughes says that while undergoing persecution in the flesh, Jesus depended on God. While in the frailty of human flesh, Jesus exercised faith. Even his final words on earth were words of dependence. What solidarity, what communion of nature, Jesus shares with the suffering church. They suffered, so did he. They were weak, so was he. They must depend on God just as he did. Isaiah depended on God. Then we see God in his wisdom puts those very words in the mouth of Christ. He depended on the Father. And now it's a call for the church to continue on and keep trusting. There's a third quotation. The third quotation is this. Behold, I and the children. I jumped ahead there. The first one in verse 13, I got myself confused. It happens a lot to me. If you know me well, this is the pattern of my life. In verse 13, Isaiah is exercising trust in God, calling others to trust in God. Jesus uses those words. What I was speaking of with his kids, and I got confused, is the second quotation. Behold, I am the children God has given me. What's happening here in that second quotation out of Isaiah 8? Isaiah is referring to his own two physical sons, two sons. One of them was named, now this would have been a great name for one of our kids, Mahir Shalal Hashbaz. Can you imagine? That would be a tough name to call out when, when he hits a three-pointer. Um, but the meaning of that name was the, the spoil speeds, the prey haste, and what it's, a, it's a It's a prophecy. He had a son. God gave that name to that son to show that God was going to remove Syria. As Israel had enemies, he's showing, look, I've got you. I'm going to remove your enemy. But the second son was another guy named Shair Jashub, which means a remnant shall return. I love this. It's a picture of confidence. In the midst of the people rejecting Isaiah, in the midst of enemies, God gives him two sons which show, I've got a remnant for you. They will not be the ones who are victors over you. And he also shows him, I've got plans for your future. And I love how Hughes puts this out here. He shows them what's going on. These words applied to Christ are a sublime statement of confidence. It's as if he places his arms around the sons and daughters of the suffering church and says, Here am I, and the children God has given me. The fact that I have family, brothers, and sisters is a prophecy of the future. This blessed remnant will survive the onslaught, whatever comes. You see, there's solidarity between Jesus and his people. And just as, as we see in Psalm 22, we're reminded to trust in God because of what Christ has done for us when we look at Isaiah eight, we're reminded yet again as the words of Isaiah are put in the mouth of Christ we're reminded that God has a plan for his people and think of the comfort that it would have brought a suffering church that are disillusioned in their persecution to understand no no no, don't don't be don't be deceived into thinking that you fall away. Don't be overwhelmed. Understand that God has a plan. And the only way this plan could be successful is by Jesus bringing this solidarity through his humanity. That's what he's doing. He's saying, you want to understand why the humanity of Christ is so important? Do you want to understand why we call the incarnation, why that's such a theological importance? Because apart from Jesus becoming not not just like man, but fully man, we cannot now be in solidarity with him. We can't have unity with him. We can't have oneness with him. But because of Christ, he takes these two passages and he gives encouragement to the church that he writes As we keep going, we come into our first point this morning. It's the fifth way that the humanity of Christ was essential. It's essential in his victory. It's essential in his victory. And he's speaking about a very specific victory in our text. In our text, he's speaking about the victory that he accomplishes over Satan. Now we know in the future, The ultimate way this victory will be established is Satan being cast into hell forever. But we also understand through the pages of Scripture that that victory is accomplished at the cross initially. So what do we see? We see that his humanity is essential in his victory in his victory, he says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. Now, this is exciting. Notice what he does. He refers to the people of God as what? He refers to them as his children. Children. You remember in John chapter 1, verse 12, it mentions those who receive are the children of God. Um, I like this one translation. Have you ever heard of J.B. Phillips? He does a translation on the New Testament. It used to be more popular than it is now. Sometimes it's really good. He says, he, he takes this verse and says, since then the children have a common physical nature as human beings. He also became a human being. So that by going through death as a man, he might destroy him who had the power of death. That is the devil. We see in this verse a victory that Christ has over the devil. And we see the children here as a focal point. Charles Spurgeon says this. He says, I cannot help drawing your attention to those two words, the children. Hear that sweet expression again, for it is one of the choicest descriptions of the saints, the children. You are all sons of God. Through faith in Christ Jesus, what a wonderful influence the children have in the house. How many of the arrangements are made especially with a view to them? How much of the wear and tear of life to their parents is for their sakes? He goes on and says, And we may truly say concerning our Father in heaven that his plans, his arrangements, his actions, his gifts are very emphatically for the children. What is he doing here? He's saying, Since therefore the children... Since therefore the children, and then he says, share what? In flesh and blood. They share in flesh and blood. And what is going on here? Do you see what he's doing? They share in flesh and blood. He himself likewise partook of the same things. He took on human nature. The children, his people, They what? They are human nature, flesh and blood. So in order to be their advocate, in order to be their representative, in order to be their high priest, in order to be their propitiation, what did he do? He likewise partook of the same things. Okay, wait a minute. You mean that throws a problem into what the docetists believed about the humanity of Christ? You better believe it. Because his argument is this. He's like, you may think that Jesus is not greater than the angels. And your argument may be, well, wait a minute. Look at the angels. Aren't they greater than humans? And then what has he done in verse 5 through 9? He said, well, God's original design was for man to have dominion over the creation. What happened? The fall. But what is God in the process of doing in Jesus Christ? Through the God, man, he is restoring all that mankind has lost. He's bringing restoration. And what is he doing? He partakes of the same thing. This morning, Jesus Christ, I want you to understand. I hope I understand. I hope, it, I hope I don't just see it mentally. I hope it hits my heart. He loves us so much, he partook of the same thing. He loves you so much, he came as the God-man, and what does he go on to say? He partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. Now, now, what does that mean? The one who has the power of death. I could ask you a question right now and say, wait a minute. Is there anything theologically that you know about that would throw a problem in that? And you might be like, wait a minute. God's the one who establishes our days. Um, God is the one who has the power over death. Well, what does he mean? Because clearly he's not contradicting the rest of scripture. I think the answer here is found in, in, in Romans when he speaks about when sin entered the world, death spread to all men. Through the fall, we have consequences Consequences of our sin is ultimately the greatest consequence, which is what? Separation from God. At that point, there's a huge problem, a massive problem for the children, a massive problem for humanity. But there's a promise throughout the entire scripture that Messiah would ultimately destroy the devil. I want you to see this, Genesis 3.15. We've mentioned it a lot. It's really what a lot of people call the first gospel. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. Now notice what Messiah will ultimately do to the serpent. He shall what? Bruise your head. Let me ask you a question. If you want to kill a snake, where do you hit it? Huh? On the head. You see, when you look at the next phrase, you see an allusion to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. It says, you shall bruise his heel. That's not a fatal blow. But the first one is a fatal blow. He's going to destroy. Another passage that illustrates this is 1 John chapter 3, verse eight. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil Speaking of habitual life of sinning, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. Now notice the last phrase, the reason the Son of God appeared was to what? Destroy the works of the devil. So as we look at Hebrews 2:14, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. This is so exciting. The passage I told you earlier, Romans 5, here it is again. It's, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. What, what's going to happen? You see, you remember when we were talking about due to the fall of man man's original design was distorted. And we saw passages like 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4. The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. Ephesians chapter 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins. 1 John chapter 5. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. I like how John MacArthur puts this. He says... So in this regard, why did Christ become man? Why did he die? That through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil. The only way to destroy Satan was to rob him of his weapon, death. Physical death, spiritual death, eternal death. Satan knew that God required death for us because of sin. Death had become the most certain fact of life. Satan knew that men, if they remained as they were, would die and go out of God's presence into hell forever. Satan wants to hold on to men until they die because once they are dead, the opportunity for salvation is gone forever. Men cannot escape after death, so God had to wrest from Satan the power of death, and for just that purpose, Jesus came. Isn't it exciting when we look at the Old Testament? Look at the promises. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. And in Hosea, I shall ransom them from the power of Sheol. I shall redeem them from death. O death, where are your plagues? And then we read what Paul says about Christ when he says, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. You see, this is a problem. So what do we got? Seven ways his humanity was essential. Number number five in his victory. Number six in his emancipation. Numbers are off there, but that's what they mean. Number five in his victory. Number six in his emancipation. Now, Look at this. This is exciting because what did it require? You know, when we come to Easter in a very short while, you know, so often, isn't it exciting on Easter to look at 1 Corinthians 15? And when we look at 1 Corinthians 15, how do we see that Christ stamped out death and the penalty of death and the fear of death? Ultimately, it was through what? He died, but then he, he rose again through his resurrection. You see, what's happening is, is that through the gospel, do you remember if you were with us on Sunday night last week or Sunday afternoon, we talked about the resurrection. It shows us that Christ is the first fruits of our resurrection. It means that because Jesus rose from the dead, his resurrection assures our resurrection as the people of God means that our resurrection is as certain as the resurrection of Jesus. Now think about that. You once have this situation that because of sin and because of Satan with the power of death and the consequences of separation from God, you even remember in Hebrews when it says it's appointed for a man to die once and after that comes the judgment. What will set us free from the fear of death? What will set us free? That's where we're going here. You see, it's not just in his victory over Satan. It's in his emancipation, in his setting free of the captives. His humanity was essential in order for us to get through these. You know, we think about death and we think about the passages that speak about this. Psalm 89, what man can live and never see death? who can deliver his soul from the power of Sheol. Even the psalmist spoke about the terrors of death. My heart is in anguish within me. The terrors of death have fallen upon me. But it's at the end of the passage. It's what Stan read for us earlier. Here it is, oh death, where is your victory? Oh death, where is your sting? Now notice the middle verse, the sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. This morning, if you've never come to a place of trusting in Jesus for your salvation, as we examine why the humanity of Christ was essential, I pray that you would see something. I pray that you would see it was absolutely necessary for Jesus Christ to be fully man in order for the possibility to be there that your sins could be atoned for. You may be thinking, well, why? Why would I need this? Why would I need to be compelled to hear this? You may be thinking, just get me out of here. I don't want to hear any more about Hebrews 2. Why is it of utmost importance? Why is it of great, great importance for you to listen to this? Here's why. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. The law commands us to obey the will of God. Let me ask you something. Do you keep the law of God perfectly? James tells us that anyone who's broken the law, even in one point, is guilty of breaking the entire law. You see, in my flesh, I don't seek to break the law, but I break it. Sometimes I seek to break it, my flesh. Other night, I was driving uh, my car, and uh, my headlight was out, and I was nervous about it because I was headed to Gurley, and I was like, if I could just make it to AutoZone, I might be able to avoid the consequences of the law. And I passed a policeman. And you better believe I was looking in that rearview mirror for a long time. I made it to AutoZone. I got my light changed. But but think about all the different ways we break the law of God, not just in what we actively do, but what we don't do. You see, here it is. He's saying, now, now notice where he's going. That's the dilemma of everyone in this room. But why is the humanity of Christ necessary? He says, but thanks be to God who gives us, The victory, it's up there somewhere. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. I can't find the verse, (laughs) but that's the verse. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Without Jesus Christ and without his full humanity, full deity, we are under a bondage. We're under a bondage. But this passage here shows us the freedom of what Christ did. It says that through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. And deliver, set free. All those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Are you fearful of death today? Are you overwhelmed with fear of death? When I was younger, I never thought about death. I sometimes would think about it when uh, I had a childhood friend named Kevin Works who suddenly died on the soccer field when I was a junior in high school. I was coming back from vacation with my family. We didn't have cell phones then. But at some point along the way, I found out that Kevin had died, and it shook me. I'll never forget it. it. It was a rocking experience in my life. But for the most part, growing up, I didn't really think about it. But you know what happens when you get into middle age? You start seeing people that you went to school with start dying. You start seeing parents of those best friends die. You lose your own parent. You lose maybe multiple. You lose relatives. You lose mom and dad. You've all you faced this in your life. In, in younger kids, you've seen it happen with your uncles and your aunts and with your parents and their experience. But what do we see here? There's a fear of death. But what does Jesus do? He brings Rescue. He brings deliverance. And notice what he does. He delivers all those who, through fear of death, were subject to lifelong slavery. Slavery. Do you remember in Luke's gospel? Jesus says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. But then look at the next phrase he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. Think about it. They were captives. Um, in John's gospel, they didn't see themselves as captives. Notice John 8, 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Pharisees stood up, bunch of them, they answered him, we are the offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, notice this, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Think about it. They didn't understand Jesus was speaking of a spiritual reality. They thought he was speaking of a physical reality. And what was he showing them? If you are in bondage to sin in your lifestyle, it shows that you are shackled, you are enslaved. And the very fact that you are enslaved leads you to do what? Fear death. Have you ever noticed something? Think about this, worldview is a big deal. Some people, the way they look at the world demonstrates their lack of hope in Christ. If you have no hope for the future, do you think you're going to seek to preserve your life in the present at all cost? Do you realize that there's a reason why a lot of people, their religious system is the earth? Their religious system is global warming. Their religious system is fighting pandemics. Now, now, I don't want to in any way trivialize stewardship of not only our own life, but of the earth. But what I'm seeking of is there's a drastic difference in the worldview of someone who's not fearful of death in the future and someone else who only has the present and that is it. Drastic difference. It's amazing. You look at a naturalist, you look at a existentialist, you look at someone in the world who's moved away from the things of God, it will affect the way they look at the here and now because the here and now is the best that it will ever be right now. Maintain it at all cost. Live as long as you can. Make it last as long as possible. But for the Christian, they're set free And notice Titus 3, he alludes to the same type of slavery Luke and John's gospel to speak of. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, enslaved. But Christ breaks. The power of sin, he breaks the consequence of sin. And what takes place? Now we no longer have to live enslaved to various lusts. And not only that, he breaks the ultimate consequence of sin. The ultimate consequence of sin is facing the judgment of God. And why did Paul say in Philippians, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And then again, the passage I think I couldn't find. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? I want to ask yourself a, you, you a question this morning. Maybe you're with us today and you're thinking, I'm a Christian. I, I'm so excited because I believe that this is true. And your, your heart is sort of echoing uh, excitement about what you read in Hebrews 2, but maybe you're with us today and you're scared to death of dying. Maybe you're overwhelmed. I wanna challenge you to do something. If that's the case, I want you to consider something. I want you to hit this head on. I was telling the first group, maybe you're way past the days of index cards. I want you to take something small that you can write on, whether they're index cards, whether it's something on your phone, I want you to begin to start writing the promises of God as it relates to the freedom that Christ brings, the freedom from the fear of death. And I want you to begin, as you face those thoughts, as you have those things come through your head, which makes you sort of, I'm scared of dying, I'm scared of death. I want you to begin quoting the word of God. In a moment, we're gonna see that Christ is our high priest. Isn't it exciting that while our first, you know, like Father Adam, he failed miserably in the temptations he had to Satan, but aren't you thankful that we have a faithful high priest who was tempted as we were, yet without sin? And when he went into the wilderness, he was tempted by Satan, but unlike Adam, he is the greater Adam, he is the second Adam. And rather than succumb to the temptation, Of Satan. What did Jesus do? He revealed who he was in his response, but what did he do? He quoted the word of God. challenge you to do the same thing. As you deal with fear of death, as you deal with thoughts that get you off kilter, I want you to begin quoting the scripture. Stand on the word of God. Maybe you're sitting in the lobby of of a doctor's office. Maybe you're waiting on your oil getting changed. Pull out those cards and literally begin quoting them. Memorize the word of God. And every time those thoughts come into your head, stand on what the word of God says. Because here we see not only the essential nature of the humanity of Christ in his victory over Satan, But we see it was essential that Jesus be fully man in order for us to be set free, whether it's various and lust that we're enslaved to, and ultimately the ultimate consequence of being enslaved to those lusts, which is separation from God eternally in hell. We don't have to fear death. In verse 16, for surely it is not angels that he helps but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Remember we were talking about, it seems as if David in Psalm, when he was writing, what is man that thou art mindful of him? Uh, yeah. this, is, this is a good place to say that. We, we, we imagine that as he's looking up at the stars and he's looking at the night sky, David's like, what is man that thou art mindful of him? And here, this is another place to say it, isn't it? Why us? Why not the angels? A lot of people get hung up on stuff in the Bible, and they say, well, that's not fair. Well, let me ask you this. I bet it's not fair to a lot of our human response that God doesn't give second chances to the evil angels. Think about it. We often say, wait a minute, it's not fair for God to be sovereign over salvation. But wait a minute, not many people say it's not fair to God to bring judgment upon the angels. But what is he saying here? It's not the angels that he came to redeem. It's not the angels that he partook of the same thing. It is who? It is humans. It is those with human nature. And look what he does here. It is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. And ultimately, when we look at that phrase, offspring of Abraham, it's not just speaking of like ethnical in an ethnic way. It's speaking about The spiritual sons of Abraham are those who trust God by faith. Growing up, I love Rich Mullins, and I love one of his songs is that he was saying, when I think of Abraham and his promise, and he says, when I look up at the stars, and I think that one of those stars represents me, that God knew that the descendants of Abraham would be as the stars in the sky, And they would be the spiritual sons of Abraham. Why? Because they are the many sons called to glory. They are the ones that he speaks of when he speaks of the children. It is not the angels that he helps. But that leads us to our last point today. The seventh way his humanity was essential is in his priestly role. We're really going to hit this as we keep going through the book of Hebrews. Today, we're just going to really do an introduction to it. But I want you to think of something. The high priest was the one on the day of atonement who would offer up sacrifices on behalf of the people. Yet Jesus is our high priest. He doesn't offer up a sacrifice of an animal. He offers up the sacrifice of himself. And in order for that sacrifice to be sufficient, in order for that sacrifice to accomplish what Hebrews is pointing to, it was essential that he be fully human and fully God. And here he speaks about, we have a high priest, verse 17, therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. Think about that line, a merciful and faithful high priest. Aren't you thankful for the mercy of God that we don't get what we deserve? Man, can you imagine, I mean, if we really caught the real perspective of how glorious that reality and truth is, We wouldn't have enough time to go through testimonials, would we, about how God has extended mercy to us. But this is who he is. He he is a merciful. He's faithful. He's he's down to the T of his duty. He does it perfectly. He's a faithful high priest in the service of God. And then he says to make propitiation for the sins of the people. We've committed treason against the holy God. God in his holiness has a wrathful response to sin. It's it's, it's a subject that we often don't discuss, you know? If you think about it, so many times while we want to emphasize the love of God, we typically avoid talking about the judgment of God, about the wrath of God. God is just to bring wrath upon sinners. How in the world can my sins be removed? The theological term is similar, but it's expiation. How can the barrier that is so vast, how can it be removed? In order for it to be removed, my sins have to have a propitiation, And what does that speak of? It speaks of the holiness of God in his wrath. His wrath must be appeased. And what we learn later on in the book of Hebrews is without the shedding of blood, there can be no remission of sin. And Jesus, as our faithful and merciful high priest, he becomes the propitiation of our sins. He takes upon himself that which we deserve. We deserve the wrath of God. The wrath of the Father falls upon the Son in order that we might be forgiven. You think, wait a minute, why is the humanity so important? Why does, it, why does Jesus have to be fully human? Because he had to partake of the same thing. He had to be made like his brothers in every respect in order to make propitiation for the sins of the people. And then listen to verse 18. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Wow, this is amazing. Do you realize that uh, earlier we were talking about, you know, the quotation out of Psalm 22, the quotations out of Isaiah 8 that I flipped and messed up? those, those, Those passages speak volumes of God's solidarity with his children. It speaks volumes of encouraging those who are suffering to keep going. But think about this. If you are a recipient of this letter, and we are because God's given us his word, but think about the initial recipients who are suffering, who are outcast, who are persecuted. What does it do for you when you begin to realize, wait a minute, who who is he? Who is this Jesus? And he says, no, he became like you, like his brothers in every respect, fully God but fully man. And he took your place as the high priest. He has suffered when tempted. And all of a sudden you go, wait a minute, he identifies with me. He understands. You ever had this thought, nobody understands? How many times did you think that growing up? I thought it all the time. My dad said one time, I was like five years old. I was a little younger than Will, and he said I was in my room, and I was kicking the wall, and I had just gotten spanked, and I was kicking the wall, yelling as hard as I could, I'm dying, I'm dying, I'm dying. He said I was screaming it for minutes. You know what? Nobody understood me. Have you ever thought that? Nobody understands Well, this may sound cliche, but I pray you'd see it in the context of what we're looking at here. Christ understands. You say, well, how can he understand? Because he's a faithful high priest. He became like one of us. I was reading a a guy that lives out in Oklahoma City where my mom and my stepdad are. And uh, I like this guy. I don't agree with everything he says, but I like a lot of what he says. Sam Storms. And Sam made some great points. He said, you know, think of some of the ways that Jesus identifies with us. Think about how many people are illegitimate. They're like, man, I don't even know who my dad is. I didn't know who my mom was. Jesus was born under a cloud of illegitimacy. Some people are ashamed or they think, I don't have as much as other people. He says, Jesus lived a life in relative poverty. He said, Jesus lived in obscurity for the great majority of his life. He faced callous disregard. Do you realize that his adoptive father, Joseph, it appears from history that he died while Jesus was still really young. Some people think around 11 or 12, maybe even younger. You may be here today thinking, well, I lost my dad. I lost my mom at an early age. Jesus understands. You keep going. He experienced loss of childhood. He made his living and supported himself as a carpenter through manual labor. He was an outcast. He experienced the depths of loneliness. He experienced the pain of being unappreciated. He felt the pain of being misunderstood. His motives were constantly questioned, maligned, misrepresented. He felt the sting of slander, suffered from being rejected by his own family. He knows what it's like to feel the horrible anguish of being abandoned, betrayed by his friends. He felt the pain of physical abuse. He was the true victim of social injustice. He felt the pain of being abandoned. Now let me ask you something. And then you keep going with it. We'll see it later. But do you mean he has been tempted as we, yet he is without sin. We all have a breaking point, you know? You put the magnet of the temptation of sin against me, and so often, how long does it take for me to succumb to the temptation? Probably about 2% sometimes. But with Jesus, it went to 100%. He never succumbed to it. In so many ways, we can't even relate to him, but he relates with us. He relates with us. Now think about it, think about it, think about it. Don't make Christianity impersonal, some distant theological dogma. Christ Jesus in the incarnation, in his full humanity, full deity, came to take our place. And the author of Hebrews wants these Christians to understand the implications. And again, I challenge you today, without a high view of Christ, without an understanding of who he is, it has massive implications on how we live the Christian life. But this is our Lord. This is our God. A question that I was often asked in seminary when it came to application was this, it was simple, you read something, and then the question goes like this. How does this compel you to worship and live on mission with God? I'll put the question right back in your lap today. From what you've looked at in Hebrews chapter 2, how does this compel you to worship him? You see, wouldn't it be tragic if we listened to this and we walked out and all we got was this detached sense of, yeah, today we learned about who Christ was. But today, this is meant to draw us into worship, to offer up our lives to him. I pray we'd see that. So we see in his victory, in his emancipation, in his priestly role, we have a faithful and merciful high priest. I lose sight of that often. I lose sight of the way that he understands me. I lose sight of that. I know, I'm like, well, I know, he made me. Psalm 139 says he knows every thought, but I lose sight of the, the reality and the mystery and the miracle that Christ becoming man, that he identifies and sympathizes with me in ways that I can't fully understand, but ways that are majestic, ways that are tremendous, Ways that should change the way I live. Would you bow your head? Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you that you are greater. Oh God, I pray that, uh, that this would change us, Lord. Lord, we're so Lord, we' we're so prone to wonder at times. And, God, we're so hard-headed often, and, and Lord, we, we sometimes we are hard to just pay attention to what we've heard. But, Lord, I pray we wouldn't drift away. I pray we wouldn't drift from the, the promises and the truths and the statements about who you are. But, God, I pray. I pray, Lord, that we would walk with you. That, God, we wouldn't just know a lot about Christ, but we would know Christ. Lord, I think about Paul in Philippians when he says, I want to know you and the power of your resurrection. Oh God, life is so short. I pray we wouldn't be nominal Christians who went to church on Sundays occasionally, but our hearts and our practices were far from you. But God, I pray that we would be captivated by who you are and that by knowledge of who you are would change the things we love. It would change our idols. And God, it would put our hearts towards you. Lord, the only way we can do that is by the power of your spirit. Lord, I pray that this book, this chapter, would grab our heart, grab our life. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You stand with me in these last moments. I was thinking, you know, what it, what is it that uh, I, I was uh, reading, uh, listening to? Hey, a, like a interview with a guy talking about the faith and talking about apologetics and, and Christian kids and teenagers. He was basically talking about how many professing Christians. In high school, they basically fall away from the faith in college, and it sadly reveals they never had a true root in Christ. You, you, you know what? I pray you pray with me. We got some younger people in this room. I pray that the Spirit of God would captivate their heart for a love for Jesus. Because you see, the author of Hebrews understood that as the Spirit revealed Himself through His Word, what was going to encourage these people to endure? And to possibly even lose their life for the sake of Christ. It would be to fall so in love with who Christ is and the revelation of the knowledge of him that in that high Christology, they may walk and know him and understand that he is far greater. He is truly the pearl, the greatest price, the greatest treasure. That same is true of us today, not just college kids. But right now, just go before the Lord. Charlie's going to be to my right in the hallway. Maybe you're with us today. You've never trusted Christ. And you're thinking, I've got a fear of death. I'm sick of living with it. But this Jesus, I want to know him. I want to follow him. I want to walk with him. Today, trust in him. Believe on him. Look to Jesus. Maybe you need help just knowing what that means. Charlie would love to talk to you. Others would love to talk to you. But right now, just go before the Lord. Let's pray that the Lord would just guide us in application as we leave today. I just want to speak in the name of Jesus. Every heart, every mind, because I know there's peace within your presence, I speak, Jesus. Lord, we thank you for your word. that's perfect and authoritative and sufficient, and Lord, thank you for Revealing yourself to us, and uh, Lord, we 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 praise you, we worship you, and uh, Lord, I pray that uh, we would grow in in light of these truths, that they'd have massive impacts on our heart and our life, Lord. As we leave, we again we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You be seated. Uh, just a moment. Um, again, if you're interested in uh, coming to our membership class, you don't have to join if you come to the class. We're not going to, we just lock the doors and until you sign the card, you're not leaving. Miss Kidd. We'll let you leave. We really want you to be where God puts you because if he's not put you here, you'll be miserable being here. So uh, we'd love for you to be here though if you're a guest and uh, we want you to know that you're welcome and we'd love for you to uh, pursue like uh, accountability and, and membership of the church. But um, I think I mentioned all my announcements. Uh, if you're interested in the ladies' Bible study, see Sarah. But uh, anything else I'm forgetting? Will, you got anything? <laughs> hey, Will caught a big fish the other night. I'm telling you, it was solid. Solid fish, buddy. So if you need to know about it, just talk to him. He'll tell you all about it. And uh, But uh, I think we're done. Thanks for coming. God bless you.